0: Welcome to another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 22? Well, Starting in verse 16, where we left off last week, you might remember that God had delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt. He had delivered them from the hand of their enemy. He had brought them to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and there he had made a covenant with them, starting with 10 commandments. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. If you keep my laws and my ways, then it will go well for you. I will bless you. I will protect you. But if you do not keep my law, then that blessing will be removed. That protection will be removed and judgment will come. And if you're with us on Sunday mornings, here's a shameless plug. Sunday mornings, uh, we're going through the book of Daniel. And that is the story of God's people who did not keep God's ways, and they are conquered and taken into captivity in the land of Babylon. And you can get that uh, sermon series, um, uh, same place you get uh, the 20-minute Bible study. So I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, you also uh, check out our Sunday mornings as well. Shameless plug. Now, verse 16, chapter 23 God is continuing to give his laws and his, his standards for how his people should live. This is a fun one to start with. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. Okay, so um, bride price is like a dowry. I think anyone who's watched... A Jane Austen film, Downton Abbey, you know, any of these British kind of movies, you, you know what I'm talking about here. But the, the idea is this. The biblical framework for human sexuality is a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And that's it. There is a challenge with that because we do not hold in our culture, to that pattern. But let me say this. The first Christians lived in a culture that did not hold to that pattern either. In Greek and Roman culture, they did not hold to that pattern. You, in, 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 in Greco-Roman culture, you had your wife, and she was the one that you had kids with, that you were socially connected to. Again, if you've if you've seen Pride and Prejudice or Downton Abbey, or you've read a Bronte novel, um, then you you know that marriage in that uh, 1700s, 1800s British culture, a lot of the marriage among the the elites, the aristocracy, wasn't about love or romance or anything like that. It was about uh, social standing. Uh, if you were of a lower social standing, could you marry somebody who would lift up your social standing? Um, if you were a high social standing, but you, you didn't have the money, could you marry somebody who had the money to back up your high social standing? We, underst- we understand that, right? In in Greek Roman, Greco-Roman culture, which is the culture that the Scripture was written in, that the New Testament Scripture was written in, you had your wife and she was the one that you had kids with, official kids, and those, and those. That was who your social standing was linked to, and all of that. And then you had your mistress. And then, in, in a lot of the cases, you had uh, a young man who uh, you were sort of mentoring, but there was also a, a sexual component to it. That was very common. So this idea that Christianity is some outdated. 2,000-year-old morality that we're trying to hold 2021 America to is incorrect. Christianity was not in line with the culture, the dominant culture that it was birthed in. We serve and follow a faith that is ancient. It is more ancient than 2,000 years, by the way. The church was birthed at the day of Pentecost but we trace our faith back to the first people, Adam and Eve. We, we trace our faith back to Moses. We chase, trace our faith back to Abraham. We are grafted into the people of God. Our view of the world and, and the biblical view of human sexuality has almost never been in line with the culture. When Abraham took more than one wife, that was not God's plan. And that caused him nothing but trouble. That there, that how, how, there were two defining moments for our faith. The first is here in, in Exodus, where God called his people out of their 400-year enslavement, and he said, this is how you should live. And the reason is that for 400 years they had lived among the world, and their forefathers had messed up all over the place, and that's the story of the book of Genesis. And God's saying, hey, just because your ancestor Jacob or your ancestor Isaac or your ancestor Abraham did this, that was not my plan. The second really key defining moment is is the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. And in both of these moments, when God was establishing the nation of Israel, and when God was establishing his church, in both of those defining moments, neither point was taken from the culture, the dominant culture that God was birthing a people out of. So we acknowledge that our view of human sexuality is not the dominant view of this culture. But we're not trying to just put Victorian-era principles, which I don't believe are inherently biblical. In fact, there's a lot of Victorian-era morality that I believe is unbiblical. Nor are we trying to put uh, 2,000-year-old morality, because if you look at the morality of the Roman Empire, they would have much more in common with us today than they would of the biblical morality of the Christian faith. That we serve... The God who is beyond time. And so He establishes, He sets, He designed, He created. And so what He's saying is marriage is to be with within the, the you know, is to be the, the framework, the covenant in which human sexuality is expressed. So he's saying that if a, if, if a man who is not married, uh, and a young woman who are, they're not married to each other enter into that intimate relationship outside of the covenant that they are to be in the covenant if at all possible now he also says that if the father refuses to give her to him he must not pay the or he must still pay the price so so what god is saying is it, it, it's not an automatic like oh uh, let's say that there's a two kids in youth group 16 17 years old and they they sleep together oh, they got to get married now. No, that's not what the Bible's saying. In fact, um, I was a youth pastor for a long time. I do not believe that just because, you know, you get a young couple, um, they sin sexually, and then, oh, they got to get married. I don't, I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. Um, what the Bible is saying is, is that how God views sexuality is not how the world views it. And so God is... Placing barriers of protection around uh, this institution, and there's ways in which things are to be made right, and then at the same time outs so people don't have to suffer needlessly. Like the un- this is not the unforgivable sin. God's not saying that oh you screw up once when you're when you're 18 or you're 20 or whatever, and that's it. You're 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 cursed for the rest of your life. Now that can happen, by the way you know you 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 do something outside of god's loving law and you can mess up your life for the rest of your life that totally can happen you know you 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 go and you get drunk and you get behind the wheel of a car and you kill somebody that can mess up your life and other people's lives for the rest of time and there's nothing you can do about that But what God's saying is, is that the unpardonable sin, just because you did something in your past, does that mean that you can't have a bright future because of God's grace? So I appreciate that God is setting his standard. He's he's saying, hey, here's some protections to help people keep the standard. And then here are some ways in which we are not going to curse somebody for the rest of their life, that they can have a path forward. The only reason somebody would be marked or, or cursed for the rest of their life would be if humans added to this law, which they do. But if we just read what the scripture says, that's not what it's saying. Verse 18 seems unconnected, but isn't that how laws work? You just start writing things down. Verse 18, do not allow a sorceress to live. Verse 19, anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death doesn't that seem an odd thing to put together? Some of this is just, you know what, here's this law, here's that law, and we're trying to read it like it's a a book, and some of the scripture is written in narrative form, and some of the book of Exodus is written in narrative form, but then some of the scripture is just literally here is the list of the laws. Why is sorcery put in between these laws about sexual morality. because in the ancient world uh, sexuality and the occult were almost always linked, almost always. And, and when you read about prostitutes in the old Te- or in the New Testament in the epistles, that's absolutely linked to the false gods, the idolatry, the, the prostitutes were always linked to the temples in the Greco-Roman culture. And so, when you read about the sorceress, it's not, to the ancient mind, they would have linked it with sexual practice. Very common. Now, this whole thing about bestiality. um, I know a pastor who went on vacation, and he asked another pastor to come and preach for him, and the pastor taught similar passage out of Leviticus. And so the pastor, he's on vacation, but he's getting like texts and stuff like, Hey, this is weird. Um, this isn't like the fun thing to talk about. Like, okay, that's bad. Do I have to, do I have to explain that anymore? Um, if you're ever asked to preach a sermon, probably this is not the text to preach about and it's not good. But again, Our brokenness, our human brokenness, has no bounds. And so just because that's not my sin or your sin, it doesn't mean that that's somebody's brokenness or somebody's sin. And I'll say this, it's always better to have accountability and openness than it is to to hide. Because if you hide, then you're in the dark and you're able to Live in the darkness. It's always better to bring things to the light. Doesn't mean you have to tell everybody, but it's always better to bring things to the light. Verse 20: Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. That's how seriously God took idolatry. Now, this is the law for a nation remember there are three types of laws. There's universal law, and then there's laws that take universal law, and then they put them into practice within a localized context, and then there's laws for a nation, Um, you know, traffic, speed limits, all that kind of stuff. The universal truth is that from the Ten Commandments, no false gods, no idolatry, cast down your idols. How that works out out in America might look different than how that works out in India or how it works out in ancient Israel. The reason I mention India is because it is a land that has a lot of idols, and yet um, I one time I heard a uh, a message from a, a Indian Christian, and he visited America and he talked about how many idols there were in America. And I thought, man, if there's ever a guy who would be like, oh, it's so nice to be somewhere where there aren't as many idols as India. And then he comes to America and goes, like, you have so many idols. Because how it works out is different. We don't have uh, you know, statues necessarily. We have stadiums. Uh, you know, we idolize our, our celebrities. We idolize our careers. We idolize um, our achievements or our, our, our athletes or whoever. This whole being put to death thing was a national law. I don't think that we should go and say, all right, we're going to try to vote in legislation to put people to death um, for, for idol worship, but we should put to death in our own hearts idolatry. We should cast down idolatry in our own lives. Verse 21, Do not mistreat or oppress the foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. If I say kids in cages, that's a polarizing statement because we've already decided right or left how we feel about that. But if we say, as Christians, I'm only speaking to Christians right now. If you're a non-Christian and you're listening or watching, you're welcome. I'm glad you're here, but I'm speaking to Christians right now. If we say we need to live out biblical values, then verse 21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt, is a biblical value. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for we were foreigners, whether we came from Austria, like my family did, or you came from Germany, or England, or you came from uh, China, or you came from Spain, or you came, wherever your family came from. Wherever you are immigrants from, America is a land of immigrants. So it's not unreasonable that we could modernize this verse and say, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for all Americans were once foreigners, except the ones who weren't. Well, Adam, I thought you just said that the the one about putting idolatry to death, that's a principle. So maybe it's not a literal thing, it's a principle. Fine, but it's a principle of treating foreigners right. Right well, that only means foreigners are here illegally. If if somebody comes here illegally and they're caught, they should still not be oppressed. They should still be treated right. I'm just going to say that. And I don't apologize for that. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. So, If somebody is oppressing the marginalized, first of all, I wouldn't want to be them because I believe God still hears that cry. But we as Christians should look out for the widow and the orphan in our day. How can we protect those who are marginalized? That sounds like socialism. Let me say this. If what I just said about the foreigner and the marginalized sound like socialism, then your view of politics has divorced itself from the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that we have to play out or, or, or live out how we, how we do this based on any ideology. I'm just saying we have to care. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. So God is showing how much he cares about the marginalized, about the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the alien. Verse 25, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. This is where we get the prohibition against usury or uh, interest charging. Um, that's a really complicated issue. I'll say this. I don't particularly have a problem with um, somebody getting a home loan and the bank charging a certain amount of interest to to. Uh, pay for their their business, um, but there are definitely organizations that target the poor, the marginalized, the undereducated, and do so in a way that I believe violates this. So I, I'll leave it at that. If your neighbor takes your cloak as a pledge, return it. By sunset, or if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because the cloak is only covering what your neighbor has. Um, what else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So basically, what's God saying is like, hey, somebody's somebody borrows your lawnmower, and you say, fine, but I'm going to take your blanket uh, so that you give it back. Okay, make sure not to keep that overnight. God's saying, like, don't set up a thing that's oppressive. Uh, I'm going to hold this now for a week. Uh, so that they can go and do their job. And God's saying, hey, don't do that. They need that. When I went to Mexico, there were places where a worker would come and, and to be able to buy a toothbrush or a blanket to sleep in the company bunkhouse in this in these industrial farms, they would have to pay, and then they would become financial slaves. Most of those companies are are owned or directly supported by American companies. Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle, your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but then give them to me on the eighth day. You are to be my holy people. Do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. The time is up for us this week, but how we live should absolutely be linked to our faith. How we live should be different than the world around us. These are challenging thoughts. I think I've said things that would be challenging for people who find themselves on all different sides of our social and political spectrum. But I trust that God will speak to us and make us a holy people, neither right nor left, but wholly His. God bless you. We'll see you next time on another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study Podcast.